0: podcast
1: one production. We have this idea: as long as we have a job and we're not in the streets, that we're doing
0: good. And that's sometimes how we can get exploited. That's Robert Wilson Jr. He used to flip burgers for McDonald's for years. He got paid eight twenty-five. Eight twenty-five an hour, and so did the rest of his family.
1: Me, my mom, and my brother was working at that time, uh, living all in the same household, uh,
0: splitting rent amongst each other. This is the story of how Robert decided that 825 wasn't enough. But instead of arguing for 925 or even 1050, he and thousands of his co-workers decided to campaign for $15 an hour. Almost double his pay. The movement's called the Fight for 15. And it's spreading across America, succeeding, where literally hundreds of other campaigns have failed. Hello, I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemakers, the podcast about people trying to change the world. Changemakers is supported by our launch partner, Mobilization Lab. Over the coming episodes, we'll be visiting anti-Putin activists in Moscow, taking on powerful oligarchs, meeting pro-democracy dissidents in Hong Kong, one of whom is facing 21 years in jail simply for organising a rally. And talking to the brand new organisers who've been leading one of the most effective challenges to Donald Trump. There is an incredible silver lining. I have met all these amazing people who have all these different skills and passions and
2: interests. And I would have never met them before.
0: All of them change makers. Before we get back to Robert and the fight for 15, let me explain who I am. Like Robert, my first job was flipping burgers for McDonald's. Since that awful experience, I've done a lot of things to try and make the world a better place. I started out by attending more than my fair share of rallies. When that didn't work out so well, I tried to be more strategic. I co-founded GetUp, which pioneered digital campaigning in Australia, and also set up a massive coalition called the Sydney Alliance. At one level, it's great. The other day, my name got put on a meme linking me to a worldwide Jewish conspiracy to take over the world you know you must be doing something right when you're on a meme. But recently, I've been thinking a lot about the impact my constant campaigning has had on myself and those around me. I have literally sent myself to the brink of madness trying to make the world a better place. And for what? Look at the world in 2017. The thing is, change is possible. Victories happen every day. You just don't hear about them. So I've decided to do this podcast and meet some of the more extraordinary changemakers. I want to find out what they're doing, but most of all, how they're doing it. Let's go. The way I remember it, Fight for 15 had a pretty modest beginning. It was 2006, and I'd travelled across the world to research how Americans campaign. Madeline Talbot was one of America's top organisers at the time. She and her husband, Keith, were organising a campaign against Walmart, the largest retailer in the country. What was it called? Uh, The Big Box Living Wage Campaign. Would it be fair to say your office was more about function than style? Is that a fair (laughs) assessment? (laughs) Yes, it would
2: be fair to say. Keith actually has a good story about Michelle Obama coming uh, to visit. And she was discussing whether or not to place a volunteer with Local 880. And as they were talking, a cockroach started its way up the wall. (laughs) 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 So (laughs) it wasn't pretty.
0: Like Fight for 15, the big box campaign was about improving the lives of low-wage workers. But for the campaigners taking on Walmart, there was a catch.
2: Walmart was... Hugely popular among low-income people because of their discount pricing.
0: Walmart stuff was so cheap that the company had genuine support amongst the very low-wage workers that Madeleine was trying to mobilise against Walmart. While this was annoyingly ironic, it was also a massive problem for the campaign, and Walmart knew it. At every turn, the company tried to divide the community from the unions. Walmart presented itself as a friend to its customers, who were in many cases living below the poverty line, even while working full-time for Walmart. The unions and the community organisations found themselves locked out. A new strategy was needed. So instead of focusing on Walmart, they decided to take an industry-wide approach. They wanted all big-box retailers to pay a wage that workers could live on, rather than just the minimum. And that would include Walmart.
2: What we came up with after talking to a lot of our members door to door was that everyone felt that Walmart should come to the city, but that they should pay a living wage.
0: A living wage. Instead of saying no Walmart, they developed a positive demand, complete with a social justice sting in its tail. Asking employers to pay a wage that workers could live on was a pretty reasonable demand and had the added bonus of implying Walmart's wages were so terrible nobody could actually live on them. The plan was to pass an ordinance at City Council. It was perfect timing. It placed pressure on the whole council in the lead-up to their election. We
2: ran a huge fight uh, to actually win a standards ordinance at that time, and it was a huge coalition.
0: Even though the mayor opposed the measure, they had won. And then the mayor vetoed it. They lost. The veto meant that the measure was dead in the water, but the campaigners didn't see it that way. Madeline and her team had a hunch that the mayor might veto the ordinance. That's why they had timed the campaign ahead of the election. Their campaign had put the spotlight on the issue of low wages. For the mayor to save face with voters, he now had no choice but to do something about the issue. So they offered the mayor a way out. Instead of turning him into an enemy, they said to him, OK, you don't want to deal with this at a city level, but what if you supported a statewide increase to the minimum wage, which includes Walmart workers? Essentially, they were offering him the opportunity to make it someone else's problem.
2: To give you an idea of the impact of that, um, every dollar above minimum that we could win meant $2 billion in transfer of wealth. That kind of increase statewide was a transfer of some $4 billion in wealth per year. It was amazing.
0: Remarkably, they won. $8.25 statewide. But the campaign had hardly been a worker uprising. It had been a clever piece of politics, with some sturdy coalition building that allowed Warmer to set up in Chicago in return for slightly higher wages. It showed the value of always thinking a few steps ahead, when the mayor vetoed the ordinance they had a backup plan to leverage their position in the next battle. The following year, I left the US and went back home to Sydney, Australia. But I kept in touch with Madeline. The big box campaign had been hailed as a triumph. But it wasn't perfect, and I was keen to see where it went next. I went away, reflected on what I saw, and I wrote a book about it. Well, it was one of the case studies.
2: What we learned from Power and Coalitions, from your book, Amanda, which was enormously enlightening to us, we had not really involved the members of each of the coalition participants in the decision-making and in real ownership of that campaign.
0: So they decided to change tack.
2: This time, we wanted to build the campaign from the right base, from the base of the workers themselves.
0: It was pretty cool. I'd written something and they'd listened. And let's be clear what was happening here. A community organiser heard a critique of her organising and didn't get defensive. Instead... Madeline worked with her team to think about how they could shift their strategy to take the criticism on board. Madeline quickly discovered that her Chicago team were not alone in wanting to organise differently. Similar organisations in Washington, D.C. and in New York were all asking the question, how do you organise the low-wage worker community? In 2011, this group of organisers came together and committed to changing the way they worked, Madeline was amazed to hear about what her colleague, John Kest, had been trying in New York.
2: They were starting to put together campaigns that had at the leadership of those campaigns the workers themselves. So they were organising in car washes, they were organising in retail stores and they were meeting with some success.
0: Putting the workers at the centre of the strategy. That was the key. Instead of paid organisers alone deciding what to do and then telling the workers, here the organisers and the workers jointly figured out how to try and win. Back in Chicago, Madeline decided to experiment with this model. One of the first things the workers decided was they wanted to hold a rally along Chicago's iconic, magnificent mile. Going in and out of stores talking to the workers. That's right. Instead of having a march and then listening to union staff make speeches, the rally that the workers planned went and talked to actual workers as they were doing their jobs. And they didn't just talk to them. They signed them up. Not to a union, but to the cause. It was a complete rejection of the normal union script. Hell, the workers, like Robert Wilson Jr., even made up their own songs.
1: A25 just ain't fair. We started from the bottom, now we're here. A25 just ain't fair. We started from the bottom, now we're here.
2: We'd never done anything like that where we are recruiting workers as we went.
0: Meanwhile, in New York, John Kest started organising in migrant communities and found the workers were pretty good at negotiating better wages for themselves. The powerful service workers' union, called the SEIU, decided to back in these new organising efforts. It was the first time that a union had backed a campaign that wasn't about signing them up to a union, but rather about building a social movement of low-wage workers. Over the next year, organisers in Chicago and New York built up lists of tens of thousands of workers who all wanted radically better working conditions. The next conversation was about identifying what their demand would be.
2: Over and over again, the amount we were fighting for was fine, but it wasn't enough. Back when it was 6 fifty, it was fine, but it wasn't enough. eight twenty five fine, but it wasn't enough.
0: So what would they aim for this time? A union staffer might have recommended that an extra one or two dollars per hour was realistic, but it wasn't up to the union officials. It was going to be the workers together with the organisers who decided what to demand. We
2: talked in Chicago about what the focus would be. We said we think we should list an amount that people are ready to fight for. And somebody said, what would you think of Fight for 15? And I said, that's exactly the right level. I understood from working directly with the workers involved that 15 was a level that would both be aspirational, something worth fighting for. It would not be something we would win immediately, but it would be something that would be worth fighting for.
0: At first, some workers, like Robert, didn't think it was very realistic. I was sceptical and I was just like, well, I'll believe it when I see it. The idea was that the increase would be spread over several years. That way, employers could plan for it while workers were guaranteed rising prosperity along the way. The demand itself was its own education.
1: We're working, and we're working hard, but at the end of the day, we're still not able to afford our basic needs. We still need food stamps.
2: We work hard for We took the Fight for 15 demand uh, to the workers at the next Chicago weekly meeting, and it just took off.
1: So many people at times feel like where they're at financially is based on their own individual failures. But when you're in a room with so many people who are going through your same struggle, it, it really shows how much that this is a like a larger issue going on that's taking place with wages.
0: This is Kate. By talking to each other, they escaped their isolation and they were able to realise that their poverty wasn't their own fault. The systemic underpayment of workers was to blame. Did the $15 in particular mean anything to you?
1: Yeah, I thought that it would really be a big change in my life.
0: So in Chicago, they had another rally, this time on Black Friday, the busiest shopping day of the year.
1: An organizer, I remember, was like, you know, it's okay. You don't have to go in there. Uh, We wouldn't recommend anybody strike at their workplace, you know, uh, if they don't want to. And I remember just saying, like, feeling like if I didn't do this, I feel like I wouldn't win. Like, it was a key moment in my life where I had to define it. I woke up early that day, shaved my face, got ready to get fired. And I actually came in and I actually got promoted for a position that I've been doing for years, but never getting to pay for So, to me, that really showed our working power.
0: And it wasn't just in Chicago. Back in New York, a few weeks later, there was a strike of low-wage workers. Let me say that again. A strike of low-wage workers. Workers who economists had been claiming for years couldn't strike because their labour was so readily replaceable. Their one-day strike,
2: which they led with at the end of 2012, took the nation
0: by storm. So how did they do it? The first thing they did was they decided to ignore the law. But don't take our word for it. This is Colin O'Malley, an organiser at the time. How did
3: they stand up? Well, one, they ignored the NLRB rules that meant to make unionising nearly impossible in this country.
0: It's no secret that the rules are stacked against unions in the United States. Even getting into a union involves complicated workplace ballots. But thanks to precisely those rules, this strike was not being organised by union members. These were just non-union workers who had signed up to support a campaign. And thanks precisely to all the anti-union rules, they had very little to lose. After all, what were the authorities going to do to them? Take away their paltry pay? They couldn't even threaten to deregister their union because it didn't exist. And the brilliant thing is that the people who were going out on strike... Being mothers
2: and fathers who had to pay bills. The concept of them being willing to risk their jobs by going on strike was such a hugely resonant concept.
0: The lawbreakers. They weren't just young hopefuls. They were lifelong employees. Jonathan Weston was one of the New York organisers at the time.
1: We were literally thinking that Every single one of these workers could get fired and it was very likely that a lot of them were going to get fired.
0: This wasn't a tale of unions cutting deals to try and get a few extra bucks in return for more members and concessions. This was unleashing the talents and energies of everyone it touched. And, remarkably, instead of being fired, they set in motion a national movement called Fight for 15.
2: The slogan came out of Chicago, the tactic came out of New York and the backing for this came out of SEIU and the rest is history.
0: The SEIU ended up putting tens of millions of dollars into the campaign. Within a year of the first strike, Five for Fifteen won a commitment to a $15 minimum wage for all workers in New York, in California, in the city of Seattle and in more than a dozen other cities and counties. And now Fight for 15 are going after the largest fast food employer in America, McDonald's, to get them to pay $15 an hour. They have made the impossible possible, almost doubling the wages of millions of people across the country. How did they do it? They put workers at the centre of the campaign. It almost seems embarrassing having to say it out loud... Isn't it obvious that workers have the most to win in a fight for their own conditions? Sadly, staff-controlled campaigns are all too common across unions and community groups. Paid professionals come in, write the strategy, and then ask their army of members to turn out to moments of action. In fact, that's the usual way of doing it. The weakness in the original fight against Walmart was that the union was distant from the workers, allowing Walmart to play up that division. But in 5 for 15... By involving workers and experienced organisers in the development of strategy, they built a much, much more powerful army. It took longer, and they had to convince people like Robert to overcome their initial scepticism. But the end result was worth it. It's taken on a life of its own. Indeed, with workers involved, the demands themselves become so much more inspiring. The workers didn't have a technocratic bit-by-bit approach, Asking for $1 here and $1.25 there. An extra dollar an hour wasn't going to solve anyone's problems. But a big, bold demand like $15 was big. Change your life big. Make the impossible possible. Big.
1: We really opened people ideas to a $15 minimum wage at a time where people thought we were crazy to say things like that.
0: Back in a moment.
1: That's right, that's right, that's right.
0: This podcast is supported by our launch partner, Mobilization Lab, or MobLab for short. With the world constantly changing, it's sometimes hard to know how to make it a better place. What if we could test more ideas, learn faster, and win bigger? That's where MobLab comes in. MobLab is a global network of campaigners, leaders, and organizations sharing the strategies and tactics to thrive in a digital, people-powered world. Connect with MobLab and sign up for their helpful emails at their website, moblab.io. The next story is the housing equivalent of flipping burgers for $8.25 an hour. Imagine you've been told that at any moment you could be evicted from your home. No notice. How would that make you feel?
3: And one day I was talking with my neighbours and I said, you know, I'm not sleeping very well.
0: A few months ago, James found out that the owner of his apartment building was planning to sell it and kick him and the other residents out. And they were like, no, no, neither us. It was 3.30 in the morning. He texted around his building to see who was awake.
3: All of us. So the whole building, we're awake.
0: It's not a large building. 11 apartments in central Barcelona, all filled with people lying awake, worried about what might happen.
3: It affects our health. Starts with, you know, problems with that you don't feel hungry and then problems with sleep too, of course.
1: Yeah. That's right, try, try, try.
2: Yeah. That's right, right, right.
0: Today on Changemakers, I'm standing outside the town hall in Barcelona. This is a story about how a city's citizens decided to stop worrying about the interests of those who claim to own the city and instead serve the interests of those who live there.
4: Only because we are in the door, and the eviction is stopped.
0: By standing in the door, you are able to stop the eviction. Yeah. And today we won. Yeah, <laughs> today yeah. we won. Feels good. It's so good that I
4: want to cry, you know, uh, the emotion.
0: It's a pretty extraordinary story. And amazingly, it's a movement that's still growing. May 15, 2011. Thousands of protesters flood the Plaza de Catalonia in Barcelona. That faint whacking sound you hear above the shouting? There? That's the sound of a woman in her mid-twenties, sitting in the plaza, being beaten with a baton by a heavily armed policeman in riot gear. Everyone around her looks on in shock as she clutches her leg in agony. On the 15th of May, 2011... 130,000 indignados, or in English, the angry ones, took to the streets, camping out in town centres across the country. Why were they so angry? It all starts back in 2009, a few months after the American financial system had collapsed and the world entered the so-called global financial crisis. Spain's economy tanked, but instead of supporting the economy, the Spanish government supported by the Spanish opposition, slashed its own spending, driving a pretty bad recession into a full-on economic depression. The government called it austerity, which sounds harmless enough, sensible even, but millions lost their jobs. Suddenly, hundreds of thousands of people who'd bought houses in the lead-up to the crash were unable to pay their mortgages. Before, if someone ran into financial trouble...
5: The people that could not pay, they just sold
0: the apartment and and that was over. But now millions of people couldn't cover their mortgage and nobody would buy their property. The economists in Brussels called it a housing crash, but that hardly begins to describe it. It was a catastrophe. Lucio Gonzalez lived in Barcelona and had lots of friends who were affected.
5: No one knew what happened when you were not able to pay your mortgage. The law said that if you cannot sell, you are going to be evicted. One person who faced
0: this nightmare was Marie Carmen. Her troubles started when her daughter was struggling to pay her mortgage. So Marie Carmen agreed to guarantee the loan.
4: They offered my daughter a loan. That was a hoax. Nothing but a hoax. But we didn't know that.
0: Within six months, struggling to pay, the banks came in and took her daughter's home. With nowhere to go, Marie Carmen let her daughter and grandkids stay at her house. Unfortunately, that wasn't the end. With Marie Carmen's guarantee, the banks started pursuing her house too. They announced their intention to evict Marie Carmen, her daughter and her grandchildren. By 2010, there were hundreds of evictions like this occurring across Spain every day. Seeing this, Lucia and her friends decided to hold a meeting about the issue. They put up some posters around the city. 50 people turned up.
5: All of them were like, we're here together, but all of us has one problem, so we want a solution for our problem.
0: They formed a group called La Pa, the platform for people affected by mortgages. It struck Lucia in the first few meetings that all the people turning up seemed to feel ashamed.
5: All the Public voices were saying that this is your fault. I mean, if you have a mortgage, it's because you decide to have
0: it. Carlos Mathias was one of the organisers at La Paz meetings, where people would share their stories.
3: People arrived feeling guilty. It's my failure. It was my fault. So we discovered that the first what we have to do was generate assemblies, where there is an uh, emotional empowerment when you take out this guilt. You understand that you are a victim of the big scam, the structural failure that is not your fault.
0: Just like in Fight for 15, talking it through together made people realise the problem was systemic. The banks had scammed borrowers, and the law allowed it. It was the law that needed to be changed. By now it was 2010. For a year, Lucia had been organising with La Pa. Every day, hundreds of people were being evicted across Spain. People were coming to the meetings, but Lucia and her friends felt like they were on a treadmill. They were helping people through their misery rather than doing anything to stop the problem causing the pain in the first place. Then this
5: man came to one of our meetings and he said... I'm going to be evicted and I'm not going to allow it. And if it's necessary, I will put fire in the house because I won't let them take my house and my kid from there. And we were like, wow, this man is crazy. <laughs> I mean, we want to do whatever we can, but
0: not, not to put fire in the house. The group talked about it. It struck them that both major political parties, the socialists and the conservatives, weren't doing anything to stop the evictions. It was up to them to stop them instead.
5: We told them, talk to your neighbours, tell them that we are going to be there this day and tell them that they have to help you. The day of the eviction came. We took a camera to tape it and then two Mossos, which is the Catalan police, came there. They saw all these people.
0: In the video, a representative from La Paz talks calmly to the police.
5: We're here, we're going to stop this eviction, we're not going to move from here and you have to decide what to do because we're we're staying here. And the police was
0: like, "Mm, we don't know what to do now. It was by no means a huge crowd, perhaps 20 people with signs and some neighbours. There are some old people milling around in support, locals. And they
5: were kind of... I don't know, they didn't know what to do and they just leave. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, this was our first victory. (laughs) They tried again.
5: Yeah, they tried again and again because this is what the law allows. But we, at the end, at the end, we stopped it. But our first victory was this and we put it on the internet and it
0: went viral. The lesson was clear. To protect citizens from the system, bold, direct action was required. But that could only happen once people had talked it through with each other, and come to the conclusion that the whole system was rotten. After all, most people aren't naturally inclined to disobey the law. And those who participated weren't just fighting on behalf of one lonely borrower. They were fighting for justice for everyone in this position. Like with Fight 15, the sheer ambition made it easier to organise. People could see how they could solve a real problem, not just tinker at the edges. But like all tactics, the direct action that La Paz was engaged in had a shelf life. When the bankers started knocking on her door, Marie Carmen, who guaranteed her daughter's house, enlisted La Paz's help.
4: There were three attempts at eviction that were stopped by La Paz.
0: Every time the bankers told Marie Carmen they were going to evict her, La Paz would stand in the way and physically prevent the eviction. So the bank changed tax. Under Spanish law, they weren't required to name the date of the eviction. So they didn't. They just told Marie Come In that they would be evicting her at some point in the next three weeks. It was a despicable kind of purgatory.
4: You can imagine.
0: I was not able
4: to sleep. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't breathe. And it worked. Eventually, one morning at eight in the morning, six bands of anti-riot police came.
0: There was no notice, so Lapa wasn't
4: there. I
0: said I wasn't
4: going to open the door, and they said, if you don't open it, we will knock it down.
1: Then
4: I decided to open the door because I had my three grandchildren sleeping and my daughter also, and so that they wouldn't be more scared I opened the door.
0: Her grandchildren were 12, 9 and 6 at the time.
4: And the kids were saying to the police, you are kicking us out of our house. This is the second time. They took the children from their beds and gave them five minutes to pick up their things.
0: There are so many brutal ironies in this story. But the fact that the Spanish government refused to help victims in the housing crisis is one of the more galling. And it's one that was not lost on Carlos Matias, who became involved in La Paz around this time. You see, under Franco, it was the government who first started encouraging everyone to buy their own house.
3: He said that we must make Spain a country of uh, ownership. If you have mortgage for 30 years, you are not going to be able to make a revolution or to go to strike.
0: He wanted Spain to be a nation of owners, and the idea was supported by every subsequent government. It was a kind of unspoken guarantee, underwritten by the entire political class.
3: They say you never will lose with a mortgage, with a property.
0: So when that guarantee fell through and people started losing their homes and the mass evictions started happening, and I mean mass...
3: A half million of families has been evicted in seven years.
0: It undermined a key narrative the government had been telling everyone about itself. But that's not the only irony. In 2009, the government had quickly swooped in to help another group affected by the crash. Banks? The banks who are now evicting people from their home at a rate of...
3: An average of 184 evictions per day.
0: Per day. You still wondering why they were called the Angry Ones? (laughs) May 15, 2011. A day designed to unite the indignados from around the country. 15M. Inspired by the Arab uprising, the idea was to fill plazas across Spain to protest against austerity policies that both sides of politics were supporting at upcoming elections. Essentially, it was a protest march against all the major political parties. 15M is not a movement.
3: Because if you arrive here in Barcelona, in Madrid, and you try to connect with 15M, there is no movement. There is no speaker, there is no uh, an address, there is no phone number.
0: That's Joan Suberets, a professor of politics at the Autonomous University of Barcelona.
3: It's not a movement, but an event.
0: An event organised for months, almost entirely through online social networks. Its slogan? We are not commodities in the hands of politicians and bankers.
3: No political party. No trade union was involved in the process. There was no uh, flags, no classical flags, no red flags, no Catalan flags, no flags.
0: It was a complete rejection of the entire political class, from conservatives through to socialists. There was even talk of revolution.
3: You need to go out and try to provoke a revolution or something.
0: Those in power were seriously rattled, to the point where in Barcelona, the government, after 12 days of occupation ordered the protesters be removed from the square by force. 350 police in riot gear, backed by 100 so-called urban guards. But every time the police moved protesters on, the protesters kept coming back. Over the ensuing month, more than 70% of the city's population participated in the protest. 70%. Naturally, La Paz was there, but unlike almost everyone else, they turned up with a plan, and it was anything but timid.
5: For us, it was like the perfect storm. Under
0: Spanish law, if La Paz could get enough signatures, they could petition the national government to rewrite the laws in favour of citizens rather than banks. It was an electric idea and gave the indignados something solid to try and achieve. They needed half a million signatures.
3: We achieved 1.5 million because thousands of people were every day during nine months informing the people.
0: Was that all done on the
3: streets? On the streets.
0: Not using technology?
3: No, on the streets. It was a mechanism to spread what was happening. It was sort of mass
0: conversations. Yeah. I just want to take a moment to draw something out. While 15M was organised mainly online, La Pa was mainly offline. And it explains why the demand was so bold. It's hard to overestimate the value of talking face-to-face with other people to make you feel like you can achieve anything.
3: Because it's a collective problem, so we must fight collectively.
0: So they went broad. Their petition allowed them to talk to literally millions of people to raise awareness about evictions and how this problem could be solved. But they also went deep. With a smaller number of highly committed people they proceeded to take increasingly risky direct action, stopping evictions. This was another key to making La Paz members feel like anything was possible.
5: No, this empowerment feeling was there and then people that were going to be evicted could say it, could fight it.
0: So Carlos and Lucia and their growing team of people took the petition to the government. 1.5 million signatures a million more than they needed. And they pointed to polling, which showed that 90% of Spanish voters supported the demands. Then one of the most prominent leaders of La Paz, Lucía's good friend, Ada Calau, was invited to address a parliamentary commission about their proposed changes to the law.
5: It was really famous because it was in the Spanish Channel Parliament at eight o'clock, uh, Wednesday, maybe.
0: A man in a grey suit speaks before her, He tells the committee, there's nothing wrong with the current system. He's a banker. Then the camera turns to
3: Articolao.
0: Basically, she's saying, I'd prefer to just throw a shoe at him. But I won't, because we have to take this issue seriously. This banker is no expert. He is a criminal.
5: These, when...
3: In that moment, the opposition of the government was not the Socialist Party, was not another party, was La Paz on that moment.
0: La Paz was the opposition, all right. But they weren't just the opposition party. They were in opposition to the entire political class. All the major parties opposed La Paz's proposal, even the socialists. The government refused to debate it in parliament. (laughs) Then they went one step further... Sending in the police to break up a protest that Lapar had organised.
3: So they start to criminalise us. They say that we were terrorists.
0: It was a devastating blow. Political parties of all stripes had failed them. This kind of organizations was wasn't the
5: solution.
3: That moment you feel angry, but we couldn't stay a lot of sad or angry because the next day we have an eviction.
0: Months passed. Perhaps the government was expecting La Paz to fade away, but the evictions continued, hundreds a day, and La Paz continued to get in their way. So Carlos and Lucia and all the people protesting against evictions decided to try the same idea, a petition to change the law, this time at a local level.
3: So we started to do the same process, of popular initiative legislative with Catalonia and the parliament.
0: They gathered the signatures, and this time they won. The law changed, in Catalonia at least. It was as transformative as the fight for 15. The law said that anyone who is trying to make money out of housing is trying to make money out of a human need. And as a result, owners can't just do what they like.
3: So you cannot evict it, not mortgage, no rent. You are forced to forgive the debt to the family, to the suppliers say you cannot cut Water, electricity to family that, that cannot afford and you must carry with the
0: cost of that. Pretty radical stuff. Over the first nine months of the law, it had immediate impact.
3: More than 30,000 suppliers' cats were avoided. Thousands of evictions were stopped.
0: At last across the city, people were able to sleep at night. They no longer lived in constant fear of eviction. So what did the national government do next?
3: Appeal to the Constitutional Court and they suspend our law.
0: I know. Amazing, right? The national government intervened to allow the banks to get on with evicting people. It was almost like the entire representative arm of Spanish politics had forgotten who they were supposed to represent. They were now going out of their way to put their own citizens onto the streets. And to make them homeless, all to protect the interests of global finance. As a change maker, how do you work with that? It must have felt impossible, right? For summit Lepa, it was a breaking point. Lucia, Arakalau, Professor Subarats, and a few others decided they had to rethink their strategy again.
5: We had this big power in the street, but the institutions were kind of closed. So you need a new organisation. The street has to be empowered.
0: And they started to think about the one institution that had let them down at every turn, political parties.
5: I mean, I think Ada have had different offers before to involve in different political parties, but she always declined because she did believe that it was not the solution, no.
0: Many in La Paz believed that joining a party wouldn't solve anything. And for good reason. This was not a good solution. They had long seen what happened when parties absorbed activists and turned them into sellouts. A
5: person couldn't change anything in an old
0: structure. But more than that, the parties who did agree with what LaPa was saying were, to put it bluntly, losers. They were fringe parties who never won elections. And LaPart weren't losers. They were playing to win. So Lecia and Adekalau decided that it was time to reconceive what a political party was. Their aim? To create a truly radical party that would rewrite the fundamental relationship between property owners and residents and actually win. These people knew how to organise... They had friends on every street corner who'd been through evictions and won. And they knew the issues that people cared about because they'd been living them, day and night, for the past six years. Now they turned that organising capacity to the task of mobilising votes. Just ten months after deciding to set up their own political party, running for the first time ever, under the name Barcelona on Camus, Articallau won the mayoralty of Barcelona. It was a stunning repudiation of the political class.
2: A longtime anti-eviction activist has just been elected mayor of Barcelona, becoming the city's first female mayor. Ada Colau has vowed to fine banks with empty homes on their books, stop evictions, expand public housing, set a minimum monthly wage, force utility companies to lower prices, and slash the mayoral salary. She's been arrested repeatedly for her protests. I spoke to Ada Colau last week. I began by asking her if she was surprised by her victory.
5: Bueno, eh, en realidad, en parte sí y en parte... In reality, partly yes and partly no. It was a victory that was accomplished in a very short amount of time. But partly it was not surprising, because there's a strong popular movement and a strong desire for change.
0: Lucia was also elected to the National Spanish Parliament. But remember, Lucia had always thought political parties swallow activists and turn them into sellouts. So what did she think now? You are there
5: the whole day. You eat there, you have the media there and you have the meetings and then the media meetings and it's kind of disconnected. And if you just get into this, um, I don't know, routine without changing it, you lost your connections with the world.
0: To make sure they remained connected to the people who got them there, Ardekalau committed to a listening campaign.
5: Every two weeks or something like this, she went on Fridays to one of the neighbourhoods of the city with an open meeting, maybe two, three, four hours, where neighbours asking about what happened with this and she's like, if I cannot do this, I'm,
0: I'm lost. And that commitment seems to have paid off. In keeping with her roots, Kalau started off her term by taking on the global financial capital, finding banks who refused to rent out vacant properties. It's an inspiring story, but not everyone at La Paz believes that a shift into party politics is a panacea.
3: If there is not social movements, if there is not mobilisation, you can have the best congressman, a politician or mayor or whatever. Without mobilisation, is not going to be able to change.
0: Carlos is underselling La Paz there. They don't just mobilise people. They organise them into small groups with deep connections to go out and stop evictions regardless of what the law says. That's something that's very hard to do once you become a lawmaker. But the combination of Ardekalao's representative politics with the power of La Paz organising and mobilising, pushing behind it, keeping it honest, that's when anything becomes possible.
3: Because if you want to change the thing, you only can do that. If behind you there is people demanding these changes.
0: Lucia and Ardekalao realised that without representation... All the organising and mobilising in the world wasn't enough. But conversely, Carlos believes that without people power behind them, representatives lose their way. And who knows? Carlos might have a point. Lapa argues that Barcelona needs 80,000 new public homes. As of October 2017, Arda Calau's efforts have stalled at just 3,000. Remember Lapa's petition that was supposed to change the law to prevent evictions? It remains off the table, struck down by Spain's highest court. But Carlos and his friends in La Paz, who decided to stay outside of party politics, remain undeterred. It sort of shows the tension, the difficulty. Like, you can win some stuff at a city level, but you can't win everything.
3: No, not now, not today. But after we approve our popular initiative legislative in Catalonia... 17 parliaments in the state the regionals has Depa knocking the door with our text saying, "Okay, you must do it here. At the end, you will have 17 regional parliaments that approve laws to protect the
0: housing right. So you're organising locally to change things nationally. Either way, you get the sense that this story isn't over. The lesson, though, is already clear. Sometimes the first ingredient to achieving change is getting people to believe it's possible. In Barcelona, and in the Fight for 15, that wasn't an easy thing, because the change most worth doing seemed impossible. Even the organisers of La Paz and Fight for 15 didn't quite believe they could achieve what they were attempting. They had audacious goals, which made the movements immediately appealing. But we've all seen bold ideas that never go anywhere, Political parties are expert at this trade. Remember Obama, the audacity of hope? What made La Pa and the Fight for 15 different is that they had something no political party has. They had engaged people in direct, collective actions that made people feel powerful. Impossible goals then started to feel plausible to those involved. In Barcelona, the very act of preventing a man and his son from being evicted allowed those involved to imagine possibilities they hadn't even thought about. They started out as a support group and now they're challenging the very idea of property ownership. In the US, the fight for 15 wasn't a fight for higher pay. It was a fight for social justice that could only be achieved through higher wages. And they did it themselves, using their own tactics without a formal union structure. But they did have dancing.
1: People had their drums. We danced all in the streets. If you're outside and it's like freezing zero below, you got to do something to keep people's spirits up.
0: We dedicate this episode to the memory of John Kest, the brains behind the Fight for 15 movement in New York. He sadly died of cancer only days after the 2012 strike, but he made an impact that still echoes around the United States. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. It's produced by Carolyn Pegram and Catherine Franey. Written by Charles Firth. Our researchers are Tessa Sparks, Iona Rennie and Amy Farrell. Sound editing by Molika Bin and Jules Wookera. Our audio producers are Uncanny Valley. Our theme music is by Justin Shave. Our launch partner is Mobilisation Lab. They are a global learning and collaboration network powering the future of social change campaigns. Our sponsoring organisations are the Fred Hollows Foundation, Australia for UNHCR, getup.org.au and the Organising the 21st Century City Project funded by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories.